So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview special guests. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. So this novel I'm writing, still untitled sword and sorcery novel, don't worry, is a sword and sorcery novel, and so I've been researching the heck out of that genre, and it's no secret that the majority of the canon is written by men, about men, and the men tend to be white. But that has started to change in more recent years and even decades. I mean, it's not like it's, you know, diversity was invented yesterday in sword and sorcery characters or authors. But uh, I think there's a lot of room for more, and I look forward to it. In the meanwhile, one should be careful not to let an impression created by the majority erase the contributions or even presence of the minority, a minority that has been there since the very beginning of the genre. In fact, there was one woman author who was a contemporary of the creator of Conan, granddaddy of the genre, Robert E. Howard. Her name was C.L. Moore. And her big sword and sorcery contribution was the character Jarelle of Jory, ostensibly a kind of French medieval warlord. I say ostensibly because she barely spent any time on planet Earth, and in all but one of her stories would be quickly whisked away to some fantastical realm where the story would really take place, which is why I have on occasion referred to her as Alice in Wonderland with a big ass broadsword. Luckily, plenty of people acknowledge the significance of C.L. Moore and her character, Jerry, as well as other writings of hers, so you can pretty easily find a Glance publication collecting all five of the Jerry stories written just by C.L. Moore, and the sixth sort of goof-off one co-written with her husband, Henry Cutner, where they had Jerry run around with a sci-fi, kind of Han Solo-like character, Northwest Smith, also created by C.L. Moore. I'll link to where you can buy that in the show notes for this episode, and I will also link to where you can read for free, no problem, no downloading, no nothing, the most well-known and discussed of the Jarelle of Jury stories, Black God's Kiss. You don't even have to have read just that one story in order to enjoy today's episode, but maybe you're like me and you like to do your homework, so yeah, it's there for you to read and enjoy. It's a great story. I will give a short synopsis before I get to today's interview which is with Nicole Emelhaines. Nicole is an associate professor and director of the Randall Writing Center at Christopher Newport University, with a PhD in English, in case you couldn't guess, since I'm talking to her on a writing podcast. <laughs> at Christopher Newport University, she teaches composition, creative writing, professional and technical writing, digital humanities, and feminist theory and writings. A previous guest of the show told me about an essay Nicole wrote that really grabbed my attention. It's called A Sword Edge Beauty As Keen As Blades, The Gender Dynamics of Sword and Sorcery, which, as you can imagine from the title, is very much to do with feminist theory and sword and sorcery. As with the story I just mentioned, you don't have to read the essay, but I will link to where you can read it for free online in case you want to. Why have I been talking about C.L. Moore and her story Black God's Kiss with the character Jarelle of Jury? Because that is the author of the story, the character, that are the sort of main example for exploring the ideas in the essay, which I think it's probably best if I let Nicole tell you what they are. But I will say before we cut to the interview that 
I really liked how the essay was not apologizing for anything while also managing to say, hey, look, this genre has had a lot more potential than maybe some people give it credit for, and it's had that potential from the jump. Oh, and by the way, we had a minor technical issue, so that you can hear a little bit of static on the Cole's end, roughly in the middle, but we solved it and it goes away and it's not your speakers or your headphones, don't worry. Okay, enough with the preamble. Let's get to talking with Nicole about her essay, A Sword Edge Beauty as Keen as Blades, The Gender Dynamics of Sword and Sorcery, which discusses in no small part the story Black God's Kiss by C.L. Moore. Here we go. And here we are with Nicole. Hi, Nicole. Hey, how's it going? Not too bad. Happy to have you here. Happy to have you be patient enough to discuss my messy sixth question with me before we even begin. I really appreciate that. (laughs) It was was a good warm up. Yeah, got us us going here. So let's get to know you a little better, Nicole. What's been your personal history with sword and sorcery? Where did that start roughly? So I remember watching the Conan the Barbarian movie, right? The old Schwarzenegger film uh, with my family. And then when I was a little bit older, I remember watching the animated uh, Conan the Adventurer. And I loved this stuff. Um, I wouldn't say that I kind of understood what sword and sorcery was as a kid and as a teenager. Um, I was always interested in fantasy and science fiction. So my family was very much into like Star Trek, um, but also Lord of the Rings. And I feel like I just had a really good balance of um, cool genre, popular culture artifacts, but again, not necessarily a lot of the books. So yeah, so my my early experiences uh, come from the the Schwarzenegger Conan, and then as a young adult, I started uh, learning about and reading the uh, actual Howard stories. I learned about the history of Pulp Fiction. <laughs> a lot of this I will always attribute to meeting. And marrying my husband, Jason Carney, who is a pretty prominent sword and sorcery pulp fiction scholar. As a professional, you know, I focus on writing. And as just a secondary interest of mine, I am very committed and invested in examining these older pulp writers, in particular for how they were creating and setting into motion uh, the genres that then I experienced and and grew up with. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a really fascinating time as a writing scholar to look at what what people were doing in the 20s and 30s, in the pulps, and the fact that there was this kind of, um, I don't know how much it was acknowledged what they were doing. And I think that's always really important. And I I know we'll probably talk about this uh, later on with C.L. Moore's work and Howard's work. But these writers and these editors were essentially uh, creating genres. And these genres have they have staying power and, and they are still here. And you can see contemporary authors, you know, like George R. R. Martin, who are highly indebted to these older writers. I think a lot of folks are starting to learn about these older writers, but I don't know how well known they are. Like people like Lovecraft. You think with Lovecraft falling out of copyright was a big help there? I feel like, (laughs) not that we need to go down the well of of copyright discussion, but it does feel like if if Howard had fallen out of copyright and everybody could play with his toys, uh, maybe he would be discussed further and more broadly like Lovecraft is. (laughs) Well, I think like, and again, I, I don't know how much Stephen King, for instance, has, has publicly talked about Lovecraft. I know he's written about Lovecraft uh, as, as definitely an influence to his, his um, fiction. 
So I'm wondering if just Stephen King being so ubiquitous, right, can point mm. to Lovecraft and go, okay, you know, he was he was an influence. And, and also just in some ways, like Lovecraft, when it comes to uh, video games and other kinds of pop culture, like cosmic horror has really become um, something that a lot of folks know what it is, even if they don't necessarily like it, <laughs> right? <laughs> Where sword and sorcery, I feel like, and again, a lot of this might be probably because of Schwarzenegger's Conan, it's like gotten a particular reputation because of the films, uh, the, the 82 film in particular, right? Where people might see it as this just overly masculinist uh, performance that can be a little bit maybe distasteful and a turnoff for, for some folks. But if you actually look at the stories, the source material, and you know, adaptation is very different from mm -hmm. the original stuff. And, and I think sometimes people don't actually think enough about that. But if you look at the source material and what Howard was doing, there's a lot more complexity there than just big, strong, you know, dumb barbarian kind of battling his way into a throne position, yeah. into a king. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, Conan gets by on his cunning, I would say, much more than his sword arm. Mm -hmm. uh, that might get oh, us yeah. into the scene, but he, he gets out of the whole story one way or another, usually by his mind. But yeah, I mean, that's yeah. what happens, I guess, when you get people who love a source material and then reproduce only a surface and then the surface mm -hmm. becomes seemingly the known text uh you know and uh, apologies to anybody who's gonna get mad at me online about this but i always think of Zack snyder uh when i think of that mm -hmm. uh, and his watchman adaptation which looked beautiful yeah. but didn't seem to engage very much with any of the ideas underneath the work no. uh, and and just yeah 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 i uh, yeah i i'm very wary of that with myself writing a sword and sorcery novel and trying to learn as much as I can from reading the old stuff, but being terrified of being like a Lynn Carter type guy who right. mostly replicates the surface and makes the barbarian a dumb guy who just punches things or whatever, you know? <laughs> but yeah, I think a lot of folks came to Conan originally through the Lancer reprints, but I would say a lot more people also came to Conan in the, you know, 82 film. And yeah. I think that what might have reaffirmed a very uh, shallow interpretation of the genre was the fact that Schwarzenegger at the time still was was learning English. So yeah. his his acting might have been a little bit surface because he was still trying to to figure out, you know, how to speak. In English. Oh, potentially, yeah. I mean, I, I think as yeah. much as honestly, I do love that movie. I've rewatched it recent years to be like, does it hold up, or was I just twelve when I watched it? You know, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, I think it still holds up pretty well. I think, I think maybe the thing is the uh, it did big numbers, you know, money and bums yes. and seats, and then you get the glut of terrible films that came afterward. Oh uh, yeah, just yeah. But anyway, we can talk about that all day long. What I'm going <laughs> to get to is what um, inspired you to write this essay, which if I know correctly, this was 2016 for Skelos magazine? Yes, and I started writing this. Uh, so the, the essay is, is called A Sword Edge, Beauty as Keen as Blades, The Gender Dynamics of Sword Sorcery. So I started thinking about this idea probably in 2014, 2015. It fundamentally comes out of these earlier experiences that I was talking about where Again, like I was watching the Schwarzenegger Conan, I was watching the animated series and, you know, in the Schwarzenegger movie, there is an adaptation of the character Valeria. And then in the Conan the Adventurer, there was the character of Jasmine, right? So there are these strong characters. And then as I'm later on as a young adult and I'm reading Howard's work, there are certainly examples of very one-dimensional flat women 
uh, in some of the stories, but there are many examples of strong women like Belit, for instance, Yasmela from Black Colossus. So I started looking at just what was actually in the original stories. And it got me thinking about like, what was Howard really, really wanting to do? And even the character of Conan himself, my husband and I have talked a lot about this. We have an essay, it's called Conan the Compassionate, right? And we're exploring the idea of, you know, like Conan is, he's a very well fleshed out, developed character. And he, he again is not somebody who just acts in a very violent, unthinking way. In many instances, he is incredibly thoughtful in his actions. He uses his words, <laughs> right? And he's often thinking, thinking of others. And while some of his motivations are certainly self-driven, it's not everything that he does in his own self-interest, ultimately. And when did you come to Jarell? So I hadn't read more until I had already read a lot of Howard's work, right? And so I was just exploring, like, okay, well, who else was, was publishing? Mainly in Weird Tales. Um, so that's, that's the journal I tend to focus the most on, just because I think as a platform... And their whole allowances for, okay, let's publish the work that doesn't already have a niche market for it, right? Like they wanted to be this market that allowed this fiction that didn't fit into a specific category. So, the, you know, the concept of like the weird fiction then I think was really an umbrella term that allowed authors to have like a playground, as it were in their writing options. And then they could explore ideas in ways that, you know, a specific magazine that only would publish detective fiction or romance or Western, mm -hmm. like they, they couldn't fit it into that market. So, hey, let's combine some of these genres and ideas and, and play around with them. And, you know, maybe Weird Tales is the market I go to instead. Yeah, like historical fiction with some uh, wizards and whatnot uh, yeah. sprinkled on top, which is kind of the way sort of sorcery gets described a lot. Right. Although, funny enough, I often think of Alice in Wonderland when I read uh, the Jarelle Jury stories because huh. of how often the story starts with her in our plane, but very quickly she's elsewhere, <laughs> having adventures somewhere, you know, some other region, some other yeah. space, you know, for most of the story. Oh, yeah, not, not obviously not like a gateway fantasy, but kind of, right? So yeah, so I came to see all Boar's work from that perspective, and I was really interested in looking at, well, so how were writers writing in the pulps? And that's when I came across, you know, Howard and Lovecraft's letters, for instance. But Lovecraft and Howard were also writing to many of the other authors in Weird Tales, and C.L. Boar was one of them. And she was very much interested in what they were writing. I'm pretty sure she more was reading Howard's work and was very influenced by Conan to create Jarrell. As I understand it, like she was influenced by reading Conan and then Howard was influenced by her. And that was part of the birth of okay. Dark Agnes slash Swordwoman. Yeah. And so there was definitely yeah. some mutual inspiration and admiration, I think, going on there. In your essay, you argue that sword and sorcery has the potential to be understood as a feminist genre. As not every listener will have read your essay before hitting play on this episode, could you please summarize the main points of your argument? Yeah, so I see sword and sorcery as a way of allowing authors to not only create fictional worlds, but then within those fictional worlds to explore and expose gender as a fundamentally performative 
in nature. Um, it shows that characters are free to explore and kind of break away from expected gender constraints or expectations. It shows that gender is essentially just a set of social, political, and, and cultural performances. That's kind of what I was doing a very long way around of getting at, like what I think Moore uh, was doing inspired by what Howard initially started doing when he was creating the character of Conan, right? We also, the, the neat thing about Conan, right, is that we see him at different points in his life. So we see growth and change across the character in a really complex, interesting way. That again, I, I think through certain types of distillations and adaptations gets glossed over immensely. Yeah. Uh, so I always encourage people to definitely go back and take a look at Howard's work. And then with Lucille Moore, like, I think she real, and again, I, key point to always emphasize when we're talking about these older authors, uh, we're looking at them through the contemporary lens and, and ideas and theories that they obviously had no access to. Mm-hmm. So I'm speculating on what I think they might have been doing. I don't ever claim that they were deliberately doing these things, right? Like this is all through the lens of, of contemporary interpretation now, but there has to be something like, I can't help but imagine that there was something there, you know, Moore was reading the Conan stories. She was reading Howard's work. She was getting to correspond with him and get to, getting to correspond with the other major authors mm-hmm. uh, from Weird Tales. And so they all were talking to one another where they were having conversations and they were essentially setting the expectations for the genres that they were creating and writing in. And it was based on the conversations that they were having with one another. And there is something inherently flexible about sword and sorcery that was allowing for somebody like Moore to come in and take a female character and explore you know, all these various aspects of her character. She was involved in these communities. She was reading these stories from different authors. She was getting to correspond with the authors and hear, you know, more about what they were thinking. It's kind of like right time, right place. And we get not just only this amazing character of Jarell, but we get this fantastic genre that we can still use today as authors and creators to explore things like gender and sexuality in in some really compelling ways. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I think Sword and Sorcery's definition, which Lord help us, we will not get into today, (laughs) because there's a conversation that keeps coming around and around and around, although I am a big fan of Brian Murphy's definition, if only because it is uh, somewhat elastic. You know, this idea that, well, here's a bunch of things that you generally encounter. If there's enough of them that it feels right to you, congratulations, you're reading Sword and Sorcery. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a better approach to defining genre in general, really, than getting too prescriptive. But yeah, within those elastic boundaries, you can do so much. You mentioned two conditions required to see a Sword and Sorcery story as feminist, speaking of definition. What are they uh, in your essay, and how are they to be found in Black God's Kiss, the Jarrell story? Yeah, so... um I think that stories should have a political and a thematic element to them if they are going to be feminist in nature. And then if a sword sorcery story is going to be ultimately feminist. So by political, I mean that it challenges and essentially it makes it strange like these assumptions we have about gender. 
like, oh, well, women should do this or men should do this. They should behave in certain ways or they should say certain things. So there is a challenge to that. And again, characters in Feminist Sword and Sorcery ultimately have a lot more autonomy and choice in how they are performing those genders. And, and often it might even be in defiance of what others would expect of them. So this kind of like acknowledgement of, hey, we have certain expectations here, but, you know, the hell with that. I'm going to I'm going to do what I'm going to do, because it, and, and it's often, you know, plot driven and there's goals that the characters have and, and they are able to kind of move outside of gendered expectations. Thematically, then the author either intentionally and directly or again unintentionally and indirectly which is what i would argue people like Moore and howard were doing they were not intentionally doing these things it's creating characters and creating situations that essentially bears gender as fundamentally performative in nature and situationally performative right so certain characters might act in a certain way at one place in the story and then later they they might have to act differently Again, like fundamentally, isn't this what we all do all the time, <laughs> whether or not we are conscious of it? So it's showing that gender is just a series of uh, social constructions that are just, you know, building on one another. And, and in the Black God's Kiss in particular, you see at the beginning of the story where Jarrell and I'm going to pronounce his name as William. Right, because I do not do French. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, Guillaume, uh, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I should know better. I'm in, up here in Canada, but uh, French was my worst subject <laughs> in school. Ah. So we'll, we'll, muddle, we'll muddle through here and apologize uh, okay. to all who handle it better than us. <laughs> so Guillaume, especially in the beginning, when you know Jarell is captured, her city has fallen uh, to him, and he you know gets her helmet ripped off, uh, and you know he's kind of like taken aback. And there's this description about her uh, physically as being you know she's very beautiful, but she's also kind of coded as being uh, like not maybe not necessarily masculine, but not the expectation that he would have of as a woman, right? She's very I think she's even described as being very tall as a man. Yeah, she's very tall and strong. Her uh, yes. extremely striking yellow eyes never come across as, mm -hmm. you know, beautiful eyes. They come across as the eyes of like a tiger. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. you know, she, she is full of an intensity and a ferocity that honestly, I have rarely felt um, anywhere near as strongly with Conan stories as I have in reading mm -hmm. the Jarell stories. More really just makes her feel like there's an incredible energy inside her always. Yes. Yeah, so I think in the, the first scene, where Gam essentially he is taking away a lot of her agency, right? Like he he tries to kiss her, she bites him, right? Yeah, she tries <laughs> After, to bite like, his jugular and just about just barely misses. And you're like, man, what if she? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so, but he's he's basically forcing himself on her, and that's when she gets put in the jail, right? And then she breaks out. She goes and finds the priest, learns about hell, et cetera, et cetera. So getting back to what I was saying, the way that the characters in Black God's Kiss are presented initially, I think that we're seeing kind of this like tension and playing around with, okay, well, here's what you might think is going to happen, but we're going to turn this on its head eventually. So the initial descriptions of uh, Guillaume when he's seeing Jarrell for the first time, wild, red hair tousled, wild lion, yellow eyes ablaze, 
Uh, she was tall as most men and as savage as the wildest of them. And the fall of Jory was bitter enough to break her heart as she stood snarling curses up at her tall conqueror. The face above her male might not have been a fair in a woman's headdress, but in the steel setting of her armor, it had a biting sword edged beauty as keen as the flash of blades. Yeah. And then she's also described as being very defiant. And yeah, the yellow eyes are constantly talked about as being very mm. full of, of fury and fire. Yeah. And in fact, after Guillaume uh, kisses her, he describes it. He's like, it was like kissing a sword blade. Like there's no talk yeah. of like, you know, this, yeah. this is not a soft, plump lips for his pleasure. Like, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> but even, even, even Guillaume, he is described in ways like, okay, so he's, Described as having he has this mighty sword that he's leaning on. He's grinning down from her from because he's he's a, slightly above her physically in space. Uh, he was described as a big man, and he looked even bigger in the armor he was wearing. There was blood on his hard, scarred face, and he was grinning a white grin that split his short, curly beard glitteringly. And then he's also described as being very splendid and very dangerous. So even though it's, I don't think the descriptions are as strongly conflicted, there is some kind of like ambiguity in some ways about even how he is, right? To describe somebody, especially a male character in this position of power that he's in at the beginning as glitteringly and also very splendid. I thought that that was, that was interesting descriptor choices for more to use. So she's setting up both of these characters, Jarell a little bit more clearly ambiguous, but even with Yam, it's suggested, you know, that maybe there's some flexibility in how he would perform his gender as well. Though we don't get enough of his character to really see if that's the case or not. So on page Sorry, I, I, I feel like I could dig on what you just said for the rest of the hour, but I really want to yeah. make sure we cover some other stuff that you've got going on here. And um, on page two of your essay, you say you, you do not believe that this take of sword and sorcery, right, as a feminist genre, um, only works in tales with female protagonists. Could you maybe tell us uh, briefly how it might be applied to any of the tales written by men with male protagonists, either one of the ones you name in the essay or, you know, something else? Yeah, so... I will always come back to Howard's work with the character of Conan. The true character of Conan, as I've already talked a little bit about, is much more complex and developed than maybe some later instantiations and adaptations of the character or of similar barbarian characters might lead audiences to believe, right? For me, like one of the best examples is in Tower of the Elephant. Which again, initially Conan wants to, to break into the tower to get the riches, right? But he comes across this elder god, Yag Kosha, right? This elephantine god who has been trapped. And, and he feels pity for this god, right? I mean, initially fear, but mm. realizes that there is a, a deep intelligence there, maybe even more intelligent than what man is capable of. Uh, and to see him in that state... He is a very compassionate character in that moment. Another great example from Howard's work with Conan is the novella Red Nails, right? Where they go into the city and I am not even going to begin to try to pronounce the names <laughs> of the cities and the people. But, you know, the, these two warring factions in this ancient city and it's Valeria with him in that story. They do feel a lot of and demonstrate a lot of compassion. And even 
I believe there's a scene where Conan is tending to Valeria, right? And her wounds, taking the time after a battle to make sure she's okay. So I'm sure there are many other instances that uh, listeners or readers of Howard's work could point to and say, okay, actually really taking the time to examine Conan, he's a very thoughtful and often empathetic and compassionate character. These moments may not be the focus of any of the stories, but they appear frequently enough that I think you can look at him and and see him, again, as as a very complex, multi-level character in ways that folks who are not familiar with the genre of sword and sorcery or only have a very popular culture and a very shallow image might be expecting out of the barbarian figure, for instance. Yeah, or sometimes a very self-serving interpretation. I mean, I'm not Mm going to pick fights here by naming certain Facebook groups or other things I've come across, but you know, you occasionally see people trying to take a masculinist approach to Conan and back when men were men and you read through and you're like, you are erasing so much of (laughs) what you, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's absurd. But then again, those kinds of interpretations of, Fiction and history tend to be pretty absurd. I mean, and, and, you know, Conan still is a is a physically very strong character, even when he's older. So this is maybe the, some of the feminist potential in the, in the male uh, characters mm-hmm. as well, right, that, uh, that we're talking yeah. about here. And I really like that a lot. I, I think also, provo- you know, those moments of compassion produce a, a satisfying contrast also with the moments where, yes, yeah. he's splitting a dude in half with an axe or whatever the heck. <laughs> Going all the way back to gold, Jarelle uh, Jury here, what's kind of neat is that... Sherelle's body is the vessel for her victory over Guillaume, right? And and not in the sense that you might expect where she picks up a sword and cuts off his head as fun as that would be for sure, but in the sense that she goes down into that underworld beneath her castle, the you know, the wonderland, so to speak, uh, right? Uh, and finds the weapon that will be his undoing, which is the kiss of the you know, obsidian black statue, the black god's kiss. And she takes that with her kiss, you know, takes it within her and then gives it to him uh, with a dark reflection of the involuntary kiss at the beginning. You know, she voluntarily kisses him and that's his undoing. I won't, I won't spoil exactly the description of it, but boy, is he undone <laughs> by yeah. what she carried within her. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. And I think about that and I think about some of the stuff you have in your essay here about bodies. You know, I always think of sword and sorcery as a very body centric genre, you know, uh, in a whole variety of ways, which could easily fill up this whole hour onto itself. But, you know, you mentioned about sexually marked bodies are a source of power in sword and sorcery and later and near the end you, know, you talk about how this genre with its hypersexualized bodies makes the distinction between gender and sexuality quite clear i guess i was just wondering you know i i don't know that i have a straight up question for this i just am so fascinated by the body in sword and sorcery and uh, the role it plays in this story in particular do you have any sort of ways you like might to would you like to maybe expand for our listeners again uh, those who haven't uh, necessarily read it uh say on your thoughts on the body and sword and sorcery and its feminist potential. So yeah, the the really interesting thing about bodies in sword and sorcery um, is that within the theoretical and scholarly conversations about feminism is that there has been discussion about how writing and the body are highly connected. And so you have the feminist theorist, Helene Sixou, who discussed this quite a bit about the connection between our bodies and our, our lived bodily experiences and how writing can help to enhance that, bring awareness to our bodies. And sword and sorcery as a genre and sword and sorcery as a feminist genre, I think allows 
authors to explore that as well. And I think that this can be traced back to this long-held conversation slash argument that Howard and Lovecraft had, which was about barbarism versus civilization. And, you know, Howard came down on the side of barbarism and Lovecraft on the side of civilization. But within those two distinct areas of understanding, you know, human experience, civilization and its luxuries and comforts that it affords can allow us to separate from our bodies in a much more kind of, I think, unintentional, maybe unrecognized way where through Howard's understanding, the barbaristic elements of life allowed people and allow allow characters and sword and sorcery to be much more connected to the body right we are taken mm -hmm. out of uh situations and comforts of life and we have to be aware of our bodies right we are exposed to the elements we are not given stable sources of food and shelter so i think there is just from that idea a platform to explore bodies and what you what you do with them and how you experience uh, situations in your life through the body. And so, yeah, it is really compelling to look at Jarrell, which, again, I, I believe she's restrained at the beginning of the story. Yeah, like, she's tied up and two, two dudes are holding her arms and they're, and they're, yeah. and they're still struggling with her because she's so tough. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but even then, like she, you know, in that situation, it, it is very kind of physical. Right. Like, OK, she's struggling, but she's being held back. This kiss is being forced upon her. And, you know, she chooses to go into that, you know, other world, that underworld hell, whatever you want to call it. And, and down there, from my memory of the description that Moore has, it, it almost is disembodying. Right. Like there's points where she's having trouble, like keeping her balance um, or things feel like they're kind of getting almost like flip-flopped on her. So even there, like physically, she's experiencing her body very differently than how she feels in the, the world above. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, being able to transfer that kiss is just another way of, of using the body, of experiencing that moment and that situation from a very bodily perspective, right? She can't get away from it. She has to use her body to do this, which again is like she feels very compelled, which in the moment where she's going up to the statue, right? I think it's even described as she has this compulsion to move forward, right? Like something is physically drawing her in, which, you know, again, like put this in another setting, put this in, in like a, a more civilized setting. She would probably be in her head a lot more thinking about things, perhaps, than, than just like, no, I'm doing this. My body is moving me here. I'm doing this. And then I'm going back, right? Like, she's allowing her body as this, well, I guess weapon wouldn't be a bad descriptor in this case. But she has to be very presently embodied in order for that final scene to happen. Well, yeah. And even as she's marching up to give him, you know, this deadly kiss... She feels inside herself like, oh boy, this is this energy, this thing I've I've put in myself, yeah. inside myself, this weapon. I got to get it out. If it's in me too long, mm -hmm. I'm gonna die instead. Yeah. And 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 again, she she takes this as communication from her body. There's no verbal conversation being had. There's not like a spirit talking with her or whatever. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's all very much being in tune with her uh, physical self. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Which again, I I just see the larger setting potential of sword and sorcery of it 
bringing into question and kind of challenging performative expectations that might otherwise be tied to a certain gender, I see that as being a, a very like key element in order for, honestly, the plot to happen and unfold uh, in the ways that it does in this particular story. Yeah. Now, I'm going to be a little cheeky. Uh, in Black God's mm-hmm. Kiss, uh, we've actually been talking about it. I wrote my question not being sure where... <laughs> precisely where we go but whatever i'm going to say this as if i don't know anything in black god's uh, black god's kiss you know jarell as we've been saying transfers a kiss from a male god statues uh, you know it's got one eye and it's weird but it's definitely a fella to a male villain she's kind of almost like a mediator really and arguably you could look at it as uh, this tool of death is kind of a uh, homosexual kiss and this really jumped out at me and i'd be curious to hear any thoughts you might have on that interpretation or maybe even just the queering of sword and sorcery in general uh, you know, I, I feel like there's, it's not, it ha, it's, it's not not been explored before, obviously, mm-hmm. but I feel like there's so much room for more uh, exploration mm-hmm. of uh, queer identity and spaces uh, within sword and sorcery. Well, it, and it's interesting um, that you read the goddess as being male, because when, when I read the story, I don't see a specific coding of the god itself. Um, oh dear, maybe, it, okay, maybe I'm showing myself here. Yeah. <laughs> It, the god in my my reading is is not coded as male or or meant to be seen as as male um and she specifically like i i said she describes it as being sexless and strange and it could be maybe it's strange because it's not male or female i mean i i don't know that that's an interesting descriptor she doesn't spend a lot of time on it right because it just seems like it it is the the kind of carrier for this this embodied weapon that Jarell is um, is meant to get, but that could still be read as a moment of queerness in the story, right? Like the fact that the god is not seen as either male or female. Um, maybe a gender might be mm. might be a good descriptor. Non-binary, for perhaps, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. So my understanding is that that right non-binary is the um, umbrella term here uh, for that spectrum of gender performativity. Um, but what does it mean that the kiss comes from a source that has no gender? And mm-hmm. I don't know. Like this is it's a it's an interesting question uh, to pose. Like. Like, what does that mean? Because is, I think at the end of the story, that's where Jarrell's uh, apparent sexuality and, um, you know, implied uh, attraction to uh, Guillaume becomes apparent. But the fact that the kiss ultimately is coming from this uh, either, uh, you know, agendered or non-binary source I mean, that that's really compelling. It's something that I hadn't thought about until you brought up this question. <laughs> and then I went back and actually looked at how the God was described in the story. Um, so I don't know, because the, the kiss is obviously meant to be, it's not, a, it's not sexually uh, influenced, even mm-hmm. though maybe Jarrell realizes after that there, there was something else there and who knows, maybe it's like the fear of her attraction to the man is what ultimately compelled her, not so much that he was the conqueror, you know, destroyer of her city. 
Well, uh, you know, better folk than me over on the Appendix N Book Club brought up the, you know, Jeff Goad and Ahoy and mm-hmm. uh, their guest, Cora Buehler, discussing that sort of thing at the last minute where all of a sudden she's like, wait, crap, do I like him? Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. That, because it's only really mentioned after she takes the cursed kiss from the statue, not before, it's mm-hmm. it, it's ambiguous, but it's left to be like, well, hang on, is this sort of a metaphorical thing for something that happens in life sometimes with people's messy relationships with uh, those who abuse them? Or... Mm-hmm. Is this the curse for her? Mm-hmm. This this attraction is kind of a curse given, given along with the weapon that will linger after she has used it. I, I, I don't have an answer to that. And I don't think uh, I want to live in a world where we know for sure because uh, the ambiguity is more interesting. But yeah. 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 And, and again, this is where it's, it's easy to bring contemporary in- interpretations and ideas onto, you know, a story that is quickly approaching uh, being 100 years old. Yeah, yeah, and I and and you know neither of us are the twenty three year old at the time I believe bank teller right. <laughs> uh, who who wrote the dance thing right yeah uh, bless her and also by the way big ups for being twenty three years old and writing a story this well yes. <laughs> uh, yeah I guess I something I I, I worried uh, actually when I was writing a lot of my questions on the back end here is uh, that maybe I'm just kind of throwing stuff at you like, but what are the possibilities, man? And how can we extrapolate from this thing? But then that's a, that's the definition of an open question. <laughs> yes. Which again, okay. So let's, let's take a look at this from, from a bigger perspective, right? Like, is there an inherent queerness to sword and sorcery? And, and yes, I mean, why not? Right. And even the, like a larger sense about like weird fiction, I think just implies perhaps a, a queerness to it as well uh, in, mm-hmm. in all the senses that we could apply to that word. Um, and, you know, who it ultimately like is it, it is. A st- well, most stories, I think, do come down to looking at and questioning one's identity. And, and at, at some point, I think Jarrell may have felt like her identity uh, had the potential to be uh, taken away from her. Right. With the destruction of this, because she's Jarrell of Jory. So. Mm you move her out of that again interestingly enough right out of a implied civilized context moving into the underworld slash more barbaristic setting right she Mm -hmm. literally moves between the two and and all this i'm just now kind of piecing together because of your your question here and and so in a way like the whole story is enacting larger framing questions that i think howard was definitely bringing to the um, Conan stories that he was writing. So she's also exploring them. Moore is also exploring them in, in some really compelling and, and yeah, different ways than how Howard went about doing it. And, and was she essentially setting up an avenue to explore queerness? I mean, yeah, why not? You know, and that's what I'm talking about with the genres and these early writers in them as it's an understanding of their flexibleness, but also the the writer's use of that flexible genre expectations and conventions. Hmm. Yeah. And and I just, uh, I guess it's something that's been on my mind quite a bit lately because I love the genre and I want to see it have a third wave, you know, after that second wave in the 60s and 70s. And not just for the selfish reasons of, I want this book I'm working on to sell. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's it's definitely that feeling of like, there's something really cool here and I want more people to know about it and also to 
push it forward and evolve it. And I'm looking at my last couple of questions here and it's just like, yeah, I, I can see myself circling this idea. You know, my next one was, uh, you know, you talk about cis male and female genders and bodies within the mm -hmm. existing canon, you know, what can you see for trans and or non-binary people and narratives and sword and sorcery? You know, you would use the phrase uh, a feminist utopic space, mm -hmm. right? But what might be say a trans utopic space within sword and sorcery? Uh, because gender is, I think, again, I say this as a non-trans person, um, I, but uh, as a cis fella, but like gender, I think is so much more than performance for trans people, because mm -hmm. if it was oh, yeah. only a matter of performance, then there wouldn't be the issue for individuals of being told, you know, your ex and then being like, but inside I'm pretty sure I'm Y. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, um, so yeah, like I, I feel, again, I, I, I've been dying, I've been said this in other interviews, I've been dying to see a, uh, or if there is one I'm unaware of more, uh, trans sword and sorcery protagonist, because I just feel like it's such a rich genre for uh, those mm -hmm. characters and their themes. Uh, and issues to explore on account of the fact that a lot of the cornerstones of the genre going back to the very beginning here with Moore, with Howard, are that they uh, tend to be outsiders. They tend to have very distinct identities mm -hmm. that allow them to succeed because of their identity, not in spite of it. And frequently they're outside forces, often civilized forces, quote unquote, telling them this is who you are. And the character will respond and often triumph by saying, no, I tell you who I am, mm -hmm. not you. Mm -hmm. And Jarell even is rendered an outsider at the very beginning of the story in the sense that she is now the conquered. She is now the, the minority. All her men have been slaughtered. Nice. <laughs> and now Giam runs the show uh, with his fellows. Uh, and then, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like there's something really there in the fact that this genre it does have uh, women and very few, but some people of color in its authorship mm -hmm. as well as its characters going right back to the beginning. And I've never wished to erase that history but it is a genre dominated on the page and behind the typewriter, so to speak, uh, by white cis men that has been mm -hmm. changing in recent decades. Yes. And there's been great work done uh, on the page by uh, amongst others white cis men as well. But, uh, you know, I just, I want to see it go further. I want to see it go bigger. I want to see more people coming to it who maybe have not felt welcome before. I want to see more uh, creators coming into it and going, hey, man, we can do some stuff within here. Uh, you know, these, these tools that are already here could be used to craft such wonderful new stuff. So maybe just I have a catch-all backend here for you of like, what do you see as someone who has studied the genre, who enjoys it, who has a partner, presumably, who discusses it with you, maybe even more than you want sometimes, who knows? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's in the air, I guess, is my point with you. Um, what do you see in terms of the potential for bringing in, uh, you know, for expanding the feminist space and for bringing in and expanding, you know, say, trans and non-binary spaces mm -hmm. uh, and just making this thing along lines of gender and sexuality a more welcoming, more creative uh, space to then allow it to survive and thrive moving forward. Do, what are your thoughts on that tiny little succinct question? <laughs> well, I, not to sound like a broken record here, but I think there should just be an acknowledgement, again, that this is a genre that from its foundation with folks like Howard and Moore, is setting up writers to explore questions of, of identity and, and gender and sexuality in really interesting and nuanced ways. And I think it's important to, again, not saying that he was intentional in this, but that Howard had a character, well, this isn't technically sword and sorcery. Mm -hmm. I think we can look at Dark Agnes, also known as Sword Woman, who I think, you know, he was writing this character a little later in his life, um, 
he only had two, is it two full stories in the beginning of a third or was it three full stories in the beginning of a fourth? Yeah, it was, it was, I think it was like three and a fraction. I read them a while yeah. ago, but yeah, and yeah. It, true. She's more historical fiction. Uh, there's yes. no fantastical elements that I recall. I, mean, I, but I would assume, I felt like when I read the sword woman stories, I was like, this could have gone in a sword and sorcery direction at any point. But I still like to look at Howard's creation of this character and talk about it within the realm of sword and sorcery, because this character in particular, I think we could look at her today and say, you know, I'm, I'm using, you know, she, her pronouns, mm -hmm. but maybe they there is more appropriate as, as a non-binary figure, right? Like somebody who realizes that there are certain uh, gendered expectations on her. She takes action <laughs> to release herself from those constraints. And she even declares, uh, and this is a paraphrase from the first story, I am not a woman, I will live as a man. Yeah, she she also curses at least once. It's almost yeah, like just basically uh, saying like, "Oh gods, I wish I had been born a man." Not because yes. necessarily she needs, you know, she wants to uh, have that uh, biology or whatever, but because right. yeah, she hates the limitations placed upon her. I I don't know. So I don't know. It's, some people might read her as as a true trans character. Maybe she's transmasculine uh, in nature. It's it's hard to say because again, we don't have enough stories to really go on there. But I feel like. There's a character exploration and development that had started with Sword Woman that, again, I, who knows, like, had Howard lived longer, maybe he would have eventually taken these stories more in a sword and sorcery and not just a historical fictional direction. But I think that, that that's an it's an interesting character that Howard also developed to take a look at, right? Because she, to me, seems very much coded as a non-binary figure. And I think that we can we can say, okay, there is room in sword and sorcery for any person on the gender spectrum to be developed and rendered faithfully uh, in interesting ways, right? Like in, it's all about representation ultimately. And I, I also mm. say this as a, a cishet individual, so I can't speak for others, but I can say, hey, based on my understanding of what this genre allows folks to do and explore, you know, know that this is a space where you too can come in and use it to uh, write characters and explore plots that might be more representative to lived experiences that, that you have had. And honestly, like we need more characters and more stories like that, just because it's, it's, it's just so interesting to hear from different perspectives and see different types of, of characters that, you know, like there are only what, like seven or eight actual plots that you can have in fiction. But so let, let's see how, how other folks might deal with them and how might they play out through these different perspectives. And yeah, I, I think... I think that sword and sorcery is a, is a really fantastic genre to do that because again, it's a second world setting. And when you take ideas from this world and apply them to secondary worlds, we can critique them and we can discuss them and, and talk about them in ways that we have a little bit more maybe comfort and flexibility of, of doing that. Then sometimes we might feel like we don't have those same options when we're looking at specific real examples from our own lives. So it gives us an outlet uh, mm -hmm. to explore and, and talk about these very important issues. It, it, I don't want, you know, I know safe space has become a very uh, troubled phrase, but maybe, maybe it is ultimately a, 
safe space. I think fiction, yeah, I'm fine with yeah. that phrase. I mean, people who want to use it in bad faith and weaponize it can, as I say, go be goblins wherever they want to be goblins. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's a perfectly legit way of describing it. And even before it became, uh, quote unquote, politicized or whatever, I would say maybe you might use a slightly different way of describing it, but we've always thought of fiction as a safe place to experiment and explore with ideas and describe things that maybe we have trouble in like conversation with, you know, peers or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a place for exploration and, and growing of empathy. And, and so with sword and sorcery, yeah, like I say, the stuff about the, you know, the outsider thing, the people succeeding because of their identity and not, you know, uh, not uh, in spite of it. Uh, also, the whole being rooted in the body thing, you know, I'm thinking about how a lot of the really great recent trans narratives have been in the horror genre. Mm, yeah, uh, I just read a great novel. And of course, I can't remember the name. Listener, I'll put it in the show notes because you should read it. It's great. Uh, that's basically kind of a zombie apocalypse where the zombies are uh, people whose testosterone levels are over a certain level trigger <laughs> this disease that turns them into slavery and murder beasts, basically. Mm -hmm. And the narrative follows two trans women who have to be very careful to, in this post-apocalypse where, you know, things are much trickier to get a hold of in general, particularly medical supplies, maintain their body's estrogen and testosterone levels oh, at such a state that they will not be uh, come victim to the disease, as mm -hmm. much as they have to worry also about militant fascist turfs and the zombie men charging around. Um, right. But yeah, it's a really great book. And one thing I liked about it was the fact that it was so rooted in the body and in trans bodies. And it was very interesting for me as, uh, you know, boring all off the shelf white cishet fella to read and, and help me feel like, you know, I'm getting a cool zombie apocalypse story, but I'm also hopefully getting some insight into people whose experiences are different from my own. And isn't that yeah. a big part of fiction? And so we think about sword and sorcery and it's rooted in the body. It's rooted in the being rooted in the body. And I just, I wonder what possibilities are there. And I'm sitting here, I feel so often thinking, please, you know, people different than me come into this and write your stories and write your stories through the genre because I don't feel qualified to even explain to you the full breadth of its possibilities. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, like this is not the lived experiences that you or I have had. Uh, mm. So we may not be the best people and we probably aren't the best people uh, to develop these types of characters. And and I guess that the, like, the only thing that I want to reemphasize is that this is not a one dimensional genre with just, no. you know, big, strong male barbarian smash things, right? Like there's a lot of depth here. There is a lot of compassion in these worlds. What is it? Um, like home and hearth. Um, there, there's now there's like a movement too for like comfort. Sort cozy of fantasy cozy, are we referring cozy, to? yeah i think maybe that's it cozy yeah fantasy? funny enough the interview that will uh, be going up right before this one is with nat webb who's publishing Wingraph, his cozy fantasy magazine so yeah. yes <laughs> right so there's definitely so even sword and sorcery now has become a kind of umbrella genre and there are subgenres to it where you can explore and, and you know so yeah fundamentally while there are certainly genres that have very straightforward and set expectations for if you want to write, you know, in this genre, you need to do these things. Sword and Sorcery, I think, from its uh, inception has been incredibly malleable and, and flexible and know that it, it's, a, it's a space to just play mm -hmm. and explore. And so I, I hope that more folks who have interesting stories to tell can come to it and use it to explore those stories. Okay, I, I feel like I would love to just talk with you for the rest of the day, but uh, <laughs> at some point these things must end. Right. So are there any other sword and sorcery tales, characters, authors along the lines of what we discussed today 
that you feel strongly people should go check out. They can be contemporary, they can be classic. It's it's all good. What's uh, what's really set your heart aflame uh, in terms of your reading uh, in the you last know, year and, or two? And, let's say. And this is going to sound awful, and I I feel really bad about this. I I read mostly science fiction right now. So <laughs> That's I okay. Yeah, I've been reading. I've been reading so much contemporary science fiction. So I've been I've been reading Adrian Tchaikovsky's Children of Time. The most recent, though, I, I don't think he considers his work sword and sorcery, from what I understand. Um, Scott Lynch's The Lies of Locke Lamora, right? Though, again, I don't know how much he's exploring specific gender performativity in there not definitely not in the ways that we talked about today they were just in for me they were pretty enjoyable <laughs> so i don't know if if it would sync up with honestly don't worry about, about it it's, yeah. it's just what you've been enjoying lately i was curious yeah. it's all good yeah yeah i do you have any online presence or other publications uh, you'd like to direct listeners to or would you rather that uh you know they leave me leave me alone <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I just, I just don't do social media much anymore. So in really publication wise is, well, if you're not part of the Whetstone Discord, you know, a plug for that, right? Mm -hmm. Because it is a really vibrant community that has just all kinds of discussions. I can't even begin to summarize them. Um, and then looking at publications like Whetstone. And then there's several others that are on the Discord channel that have kind of, I think, if they haven't been directly uh, inspired by what, what Stone started a few years ago, I think maybe they just have come out of the larger community that has also developed because of that. And so there are lots of places like that right now to check out and to see up and coming writers, amateur writers, which I think is great. Like we need to recognize like while there are very strong and prominent voices within the genre that we want to look to the newer voices um, as well and give them a platform. I think that that's very important. We want to support them, you know, giving reviews <laughs> and talking uh -huh. about their work is always great. And if you're interested in seeing scholarship or perhaps even submitting scholarship for publication. So I am one of the co-editors of The Dark Man, a journal of Robert E. Howard and Pulp Studies. And we're always interested in hearing from folks who, um, you know, either academic or not, who want to talk about not just Howard's work, but then the larger Pulp Fiction work as well. So, and there are conversations in there. There's a, an independent scholar named Karen Kahutik who has, we've published some essays of hers about women in sword and sorcery. Um, so you could definitely check those out. Sounds great. Thank you. I'll link to those in the show notes, listener. Uh, yeah. So thank you for being generous with your time, for navigating uh, an interviewer who was not sure about one of his questions <laughs> <laughs> and the technical troubles we've had. I feel like we've had our own little adventure, but it was one worth going on. Thank you so much for your time, Nicole. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So I'm Writing a Novel features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine, just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy an exclusive bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and Nicole, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>